Hey, I love Easter week because this is the week where we celebrate the event that is at the center of what we believe and why we believe it. You know, the Christian faith doesn't hinge on just a moral teaching or on a charismatic leader. It hinges on a historical event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection and then pulled it off, he validated all of his teachings and he validated who he claimed to be. And it's really the resurrection is the thing that sent eyewitnesses out into the streets with the boldness, so often giving their own lives, and the boldness that ended up transforming a city, the city of Jerusalem, and then a, a, a nation, and then transformed ultimately the world. It turned the world upside down. And that's why what we celebrate this week is, that's why it's such a big deal to Christians all around the world. Now, today's message is called Unlikely Heroes, because we're going to talk about an unlikely hero in the story of the resurrection. And uh, I had an opportunity to be an unlikely hero just this, this past week. And you, uh, you know, we have a cat. I've told this story before, <laughs> home crowd. This cat has almost died once falling off the roof. And uh, I was never a cat person, right? In fact, if we had had a prenup, we didn't. But if we had, there would have been a no cat clause in, in that. And then this cat adopted our family one night after church and uh, wasn't ever supposed to come in the house. But you know how that goes with kids and a wife, right, guys? So, so yeah, so now it's our indoor house cat. Well, it defied death once, and I was the hero because I took it to the vet instead of taking it elsewhere. Um, <laughs> and it's okay now. And so just this past week, again, we had this experience where this cat just disappeared, and it was like, oh, no, where'd the cat go, right? And one night goes by, and then normally she comes back. She, you know, she goes out all night sometimes, but she comes home. The next night goes by, and by this time, the kids are just torn up, right? My little girl's crying herself to sleep, and it was really sad. And so, you don't believe me. I'm hearing laughs. It was really sad. See, I don't necessarily love cats, but I love my family a lot, okay? And they love the cat. So I'm laying awake in bed. And uh, as I'm thinking about it, all, all of a sudden I have this epiphany, like, wait a minute, I wonder if the cat got locked in the garage, because we have this detached garage, right? And sometimes she's gone in there before, and so I went the next morning, first thing in the morning, got up out of bed, and uh, went out. <laughs> you can tell I don't love the cat that much. I didn't get up in the middle of the night and go check. But first thing in the morning, I'm telling you. First thing in the morning, I go out and I hear this noise. I open the door and there's the cat. She comes running out and I got to walk back to the house. The hero of a fa the family, right? Because I found the cat. And so anyway, so that's I was an unlikely hero because I'm not a cat person. And yet I've saved the cat now twice. And so that's how I'm an unlikely hero. Now, the unlikely hero we're going to look at today is a man who you may know very little about, but who played a very significant role in the spread of the message of Jesus around the world. We're going to see his journey of going from just appreciating Jesus from a distance to publicly identifying with him and following him. 
And we're going to see how one conversation he had with Jesus played a vital role in, in bringing the message of eternal life through Jesus to people in every corner of this planet. And we're going to see that his action, along with one of his friends, paved the way for first century believers to be fully confident that Jesus actually died and actually rose again. And we meet this guy, we meet this unlikely hero very early in Jesus' ministry. And John, the Apostle John, in his account of Jesus' life, describes their meeting this way. John chapter 3, verse 1 says this, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the ruling council. And Pharisees were kind of like a combination of a religious group and a political party. They held themselves to the strictest religious standards. Not only were they the best of the best at keeping the 613 commandments in the Old Testament law for Israel, but also they had a whole mountain full of what was called the oral tradition, rules they'd added on top. And they were the best of the best at keeping those rules too. They were really, really good at being good. And so this guy, Nicodemus, he's a Pharisee. He's one of the, the, the best of the best when it comes to his conduct. And then also he's part of the ruling council. So he's, he's a very prominent person in a position of power. Kind of think of him like a senator over both uh, religious and civil affairs. So he, Nicodemus is an unlikely hero in this story, and you're going to see this, because most of the Pharisees and the rulers strongly opposed Jesus. But out of this group of Pharisees, there was this tiny subgroup who thought maybe it was possible that Jesus was actually the Messiah, or at least maybe he was a prophet from God. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Verse 2, it says he came to Jesus at night because he didn't want any of the other Pharisees to know what was happening here. This little group didn't want anybody else to know that maybe they're, they're, they're thinking that Jesus, there might be something to this Jesus guy. He comes to Jesus at night and says, Rabbi, we, there's a group of us, not just me here, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. So he's buttering Jesus up. He's getting ready to launch in. No doubt he's probably got a whole list of questions that he's going to grill Jesus on and, and try to find out Jesus' answers and see if Jesus gets this stuff right. But Jesus, Jesus does this often, and I love it when he does this, because he, he totally ignores that. He skips in. He cuts in to this conversation. He doesn't even let him ask a question. Instead, he breaks into the conversation, and Jesus addresses a question that maybe wasn't the, one of the questions that Nicodemus wanted to ask, but it was a question in Nicodemus's heart. It was something that kept him awake at night. And Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. And Nicodemus is like, how did he know that? How did he know I wrestle with that? How did he know that's one of the things that my heart struggles with? It's like, man, he didn't even let, let me ask my question. And basically the question that Nicodemus was asking in his heart that Jesus answers is a question that we all ask. And that's the question of how do I have assurance that I can be part of God's kingdom or that I can have relationship with God, that God is okay with me, that after this life that I will go to heaven. How can I have assurance of that? How do I know? How can I know I have right standing with God? How can I know that I measure up? 
And people in, in this day that knew Nicodemus would have been shocked to know that he struggled with this question. Because he's a Pharisee. They're the ones that tell everybody else, here's how, you, here's how you're assured that you're okay. You just have to be really, really good. You have to keep all these laws and do a really, really good job at us. You need to be like us if you want to know that you're right with God. The Pharisees should have had more assurance than anyone because they were the best of the best. And so this little reply throws Nicodemus for a real loop. But he's got quick wit. Rabbis are known for their sense of humor. So he recovers quickly and he thinks, all right, Jesus, you threw me for a loop. I'm going to just sort of, uh, you know, bring some humor to this conversation and see if we can turn back the corner and get back to my questions. And so he, he kind of gets this sly grin on his face and he goes, how can anyone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time in their mother's womb to be born. Now, that's kind of funny. I actually don't think about that too long because it's not a pretty picture, right? And I think Jesus just laughs at this point. Because, you know, you read scripture, you always think of Jesus as somber. No, no, Rabbi said the greatest senses of humor in the culture. I think Jesus just laughs and says, that was a good one, Nicodemus. But he doesn't let it throw him off course. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water. That's a natural birth. Every one of you that's here was born, right? And the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. And Nicodemus is nodding along because this makes sense to him. But Jesus was saying something has to happen on the inside of a person. In other words, there's nothing you can do physically to assure yourself a place in the kingdom of God. See, Nicodemus lived in a world where your behaviors were designed to earn you a spot in the kingdom of God, to earn you a place in God's favor. But here's the problem with that. Maybe this is something you've struggled with at some point in your life. When you try to earn your way into God's favor, when you try to behave your way into God's good graces, the big question that should trouble you, if it doesn't, is how good do you have to be? How confident are you that somehow the scales are going to tip in your favor? Because come on, I mean, if we're all honest, we all know our own hearts and we all know the many times we've failed, the many times we've let God down, the many times we've hurt others, sometimes intentionally. And so this is the big question that humanity asks. How do you know, how do you have assurance that good is good enough? Because nobody knows where that cutoff is, right? And so even Nicodemus here, the best of the best, he's got this thing in his heart that struggles with this. And Jesus goes on, he says, you should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. Hey, Nicodemus, you're one of the spiritual guys. You're one of the leaders. This should make sense to you. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. In other words, there's a, there's a mystery to this. There's a mystery to this, but, but when the Holy Spirit of God begins to draw you to himself 
And when you place your faith and trust in Jesus, and we'll get to this in a second, what happens is there's actually, just like naturally you were born into your family, naturally you were born and now you are a member of your family, even if you take some uncles and your parents off and they said, you know, out of here or move out of my basement or whatever, you know, I don't know. You're still a member of the family. And just like that, there's something internally that happens that, that the Holy Spirit is involved in where you are actually born spiritually into God's family, where you're born into his family. And that's the power of God, the Holy Spirit doing that in you. And Nicodemus this just kind of blows his mind. And so he goes, how can this be, right? He asks. He's just mind-blowing at this point. And Jesus, a little later in the conversation, he goes on. No one has ever gone into heaven. In other words, no one's been born, has gone to heaven, and come back to tell everybody the scoop. And Nicodemus is thinking, yeah, I know. It'd be sure be nice if somebody had, you know. Then we could know how do we have assurance. Then we could know how do you, how do you be sure you're going to heaven, right? Except, and then Jesus goes on, and this is going to throw Nicodemus for a loop. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man which is Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. And now Nicodemus is beginning to get a little bit uncomfortable because Jesus, in this conversation, is now setting himself up with some sort of exclusive status when it comes to God, some sort of exclusive status when it comes to being from heaven, when it comes to being related to God. And Nicodemus is starting to squirm in his seat a little bit. And then Jesus goes on and he continues and he just throws him for another loop. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up. Now to you, that might not make any sense, but to Nicodemus, it made perfect sense, right? And I'll just tell you the story because remember, Nicodemus would have had our whole Old Testament, two thirds of the Bible, the first two thirds of the Bible memorized by heart. He was that good. Try that one, especially when you get to Leviticus Try memorizing all that, you know? It's like mind numb. But this guy had it done. And so as soon as Jesus makes this statement, all of a sudden this whole story would flash back to his memory. And it's this really strange story in, in the book of Numbers where there's this plague of venomous snakes on the Israelites in this place they're camped out in the desert. And God tells him this really odd thing to do. Um, God tells Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to set up a pole and then wrap a bronze serpent around this. And anyone who comes and looks at it, they don't have to, you know, do any special ceremony. All they got to do is position themselves so they can come and look on this and they'll survive the bites and won't die. And so Moses does it, and that's exactly what happens. This really strange story in the Old Testament. And so Jesus connects now. Jesus, as he's talking to Nicodemus, he says, unless me, the son of man, be lifted up, and he connects himself to this snake image on the pole, this really weird image, right? So must the son of man be lifted up. That, and here's why, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Everyone who believes and Nicodemus is really thinking, well, that's, that's not, Nicodemus is from a culture where you, you have to earn it. That's what Nicodemus expected Jesus to say is, well, you need to do better in this area and better in this area and better in this area. You got these down pretty well, but Jesus throws him for a loop and says, no, 
It's the key thing is trusting, believing in the Son of Man. And this really messes with Nicodemus. This was challenging for him. He had to go home and think about this. First, Jesus claims to, to come from heaven, and now he equates himself with this weird symbol from the Old Testament of healing. And then he makes entrance into God's kingdom and eternal life a matter of believing rather than just good behavior. That was a radical shift for Nicodemus. And so he returns to his little group that he's representing to tell them what he heard from Jesus. They're like, did he answer the questions? And Nicodemus is like, no, he didn't answer one of my questions, but let me tell you what he said. And they talked about it, and it's like, wow, that's so, so strange. I don't understand it. I don't get it. And they continued to watch Jesus from a distance, but they wouldn't publicly associate themselves with him for the fear of, of you know, loss of their position of respect and power and wealth in the culture. But as they continued to hear about what Jesus was doing, these incredible miracles and this incredible teaching, their faith just began to continue to grow. And sometime later in the, the book of John, a little bit later in the story, Nicodemus enters the scene and, and, and the story again. See, some time goes on and Jesus just keeps getting more and more popular. In fact, huge crowds begin to follow him. And in the midst of this, the Pharisees, a larger group of the Pharisees and the, the synagogue, the religious rulers, they begin to just really become worried about these large numbers of people that are following Jesus and, and all the whispers that are swirling around that maybe he's the Messiah. And so they decide, we're going to grill this guy, we're going to question him, and we're going to see if we can stop him. And so they send the temple guard out to arrest him. And the temple guard was kind of like this um, little force, but they weren't very powerful. They weren't the, the A-team. You know, These guys were the B-string army guys. And uh, they were the kind of the little puppet army that Rome allowed this, these religious leaders to have so that they felt like they were in control of things. So they send their, their guards out. And they go out to arrest Jesus, but Jesus is right in the middle of, of a teaching and a sermon. And so they just sit on the edge and kind of wait for him to, to uh, you know, wrap up because he is a rabbi after all, right? And in the midst of this, it just becomes more and more interesting. And it starts grabbing their heart. And they don't arrest Jesus. And the temple guards or the, uh, the rulers of the synagogue are just sitting there. First, they're eating lunch. They're like, where are these guys? It's been a couple hours, right? Before you know it, most of the day is gone. And finally, these guys come wandering back in and know Jesus. And they're like, what's wrong with you guys? I know you're not the A-team, but come on. We gave you one thing to do. You had one job, right? And you failed. It says this in John 7, 45. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? And listen to their reply. No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. And at this point, they're like, you gotta be kidding me. You sat, you, we sent you to arrest him and you sat there and listened to his sermon? What are you guys thinking, right? So they start insulting him, these guys. They start insulting these guys. Verse 47, you mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. And then they went on, as they're insulting these guys, to ask a question that made Nicodemus and his friends that are kind of in this group very nervous. 
They asked, have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. And at this point, Nicodemus, as this just keeps building and building, Nicodemus feels this thing rising up in his heart that just feels compelled. He's got to say something. And he's not ready to identify with Jesus. He's not ready to, you know, throw his bag in with Jesus. But he just knows, I've got to say something. I've got to say something. I've got to say something to try to bring some sense to this group of people, this larger group of Pharisees that's just kind of out of control and going crazy. And so Nicodemus, verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does, this, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him, to find out what he's been doing. Come on, guys. I mean, our own law. Give a guy a fair, fair shot. And so now they turn on Nicodemus, right? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. And this is kind of funny because this is insulting because Galilee, they're in Jerusalem. They're the sophisticated folks, Right? And then there's this other region, Galilee, which is kind of the country folks, and they have a, you know, a funny accent, and they talk kind of slow, right? And so, like, come on, are you from Galilee, too? And I always get in trouble because every time I talk about Galilee, I, like, insult somebody, and I'm like, this is like Olathe or Delta, you know? So I insult someone in the room. I won't do that here today. Rangely, sorry. All right. <laughs> And so they go, but the problem here is the Pharisees hadn't done their homework because they knew where the Messiah was supposed to be born, where the Messiah was supposed to be from. And where was that? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Right. But I guess they'd never read the Christmas story, had they? <laughs> See, they, they hadn't done their homework. It's kind of like um, I, I had a similar story, right? Because I was actually, I'm from Colorado, but... I moved here when I was two because my parents moved up to Alaska for five years and I was born in Alaska. In fact, I would have been born in the snow, in a snowbank, except for, or at home, except for my dad had a four by four Jeep Wagoneer, this big beast, and it plowed through the snowbank and they got me to the hospital. So guys, if you need a good excuse to try to convince your wife that you really need that four by four, you know, just throw that little thought in there. You know, we may have to get to the hospital someday. So that might help you. Um, but anyway, I was born. So Jesus, it was the same way, right? So they replied, are you from Galilee? Look into it. And everybody's frustrated and everybody's mad and fighting. And then you've had days like this at the office. And then everybody's like, ah. Then they all went home. Like, all right, wasted day. No Jesus. But here's the thing. A line had been crossed in Nicodemus's heart because he had stood up for the teacher from Galilee. And he and his friends continued to follow Jesus from a distance. But then at the same time, the larger group of Pharisees and, and the rulers, they, they became more and more hostile to Jesus. They, they heard the stories of Jesus making the outrageous claim of being the light of the world, the way, the truth, the light, the only way to get to the Father. And that just threw them for a loop. Then Jesus humiliated him when they tried tricking Jesus and they drugged this woman who'd been caught in the act of adultery right before him. 
And we don't know, but we think that Jesus knelt down in the sand and started scratching their sins and the sins of their hearts in the sand. And one by one, they began to just file out silently. Powerful scene. And Jesus looks over at her and says, where's all your condemners? And she says, they're gone. He says, neither do I condemn you now. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. But I don't condemn you. It's this beautiful scene. And they're humiliated. And then the, the last straw was really when one of Jesus' close friends w- died and they buried him and, and Jesus came. It had been four days later. And Jesus comes in and Jesus weeps in front of the tomb. This guy's name is Lazarus, right? And then Jesus commands the stone be rolled away and Jesus calls a man back to life out of the grave. And they, this is one miracle that even their own, their own traditions and, and their rabbinic traditions said that only the Messiah could, could raise someone from the dead who had been dead for more than three days because they had this weird tradition. They believed that was when the, the spirit left the body, right? And so the news of this spread like wildfire all around the country. And right after this was the morning when Jesus walked in and the Crowds went crazy, and they were ready to make him king. And the religious leaders said, this has to stop. This ends. If we don't do something about this, the Romans are going to think that there's an uprising, and they're going to come, and they're going to take away our position, our prestige, our power. And the high priest stands up and says something so significant. He says, it's better for you that one man die. And so Nicodemus and his group watch as things just begin to spiral out of control. See, they hadn't done what they could have perhaps to stop the plot against Jesus. They never thought perhaps that it would have gone this far. But things just quickly spiral out of control. And Nicodemus and his friends, they hear rumors that false witnesses have been hired. They hear that one of Jesus' own disciples agreed to, to betray him for a price of 30 pieces of silver. They were there when Jesus was dragged out of the garden. And they watched as he was mistreated, as he was spat upon and struck, as he was mocked. Imagine going through that. As he was falsely accused, and as they concluded, he was worthy of death. They were there when they drug him before Pilate and demanded his execution. And Pilate said, whoa, 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 time out, guys. I I interviewed him. This guy's not done anything worthy of death. And they kept insisting that he be killed. And so Pilate, thinking... Well, maybe if I just punish him really bad, that'll be enough. Pilate takes him and has him flogged brutally. And if you've seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ, um, you have a sense for that. Because they had, it was called the 40 minus one on the lashes, the cat of nine tails, sharp pieces of glass and nails. And it would just literally rip the flesh off the bones. And they would only be, whip them 39 times because the story was one more would kill them. And they watched Jesus lose all this blood, a crown of thorns pressed upon his head. And the agony 
And they were in shock. They couldn't believe this was all happening. And Pilate drags him back out in front of the, the rulers and now the crowd that's gathered all around. And says, isn't this enough? This guy hasn't done anything worthy of death. Let him go. He's been beaten enough. And they just insist, crucify him. And the chant starts up, crucify him. Crucify him. And so finally, Pilate washes his hands. And the Roman soldiers place a beam across his shoulders. They watch as Jesus staggers out. He's already lost so much blood. Somebody has to help him carry his cross up to the hill known as Golgotha, which means the skull. And they're on the outsides of the, of the crowd, just in shock. They can't believe this is actually happening. How could the people do this to someone who was so clearly a man from God? How could they do this? And then as the crowd gathered around, they heard the sound of of hammers beating spikes, clanking. They heard the cries and shouts of agony of the criminals that were being crucified on his right and on his left. But then in that moment, in the moment he was crucified, Nicodemus saw something that I think so many others must have missed. Because as Jesus' cross was slowly lifted up into place, Nicodemus remembered his conversation with Jesus. And as, as Jesus' head and his shoulders and his arms became visible up over the crowd and dropped into place, and a sign was nailed above him that said, King of the Jews. Nicodemus remembered. Oh, yeah. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life in him. That's what he was talking about. This wasn't an accident. He knew this. He predicted this. Imagine the emotions Nicodemus felt. He would have been a man who had the whole Hebrew scriptures memorized by heart, including all the messianic prophecies, so many of which... So many of the prophecies they couldn't make sense of. In fact, some of them thought there must be two messiahs because there was, this, there was this king, but there was also this suffering servant. And they couldn't make sense of it. And all of a sudden, it begins to make sense what the prophet Isaiah had prophesied almost 700 years before. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. And imagine what he felt as he stood there and realized that this prophecy, this 700-year-old prophecy was being fulfilled right in front of his eyes. And he watched, and this group of watched as Jesus breathed his last and died. And the earth shook and the sky turned black. And they realized there's no going back now. This had changed them. There's no staying hidden now. There's no being secret followers of Jesus now. 
And so Nicodemus and his friend did something that was unthinkable. See, in the culture, when Romans crucified someone on a cross, um, you, by law, you could not bury them and give them a decent burial or have a memorial service. They would have to just be, normally, typically, they would leave them there for days and allow the body to, as, as an example, because it was meant to be the most humiliating way to die. And then they would pry them off the cross after several days, typically, and dump them in the town dump. And so sometimes people would bribe the guards. If it was a loved family member, they would bribe the guards just so they could get him and bury him secretly. But you would never go on record with the criminal that had just been crucified. But this is exactly what Nicodemus and his friend do. John 19, 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea, who's a, a rich, a very wealthy member of the Pharisee party, asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a, a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. And see, now they're in the open. They've gone public, risking everything they've worked for. They go on record identifying with Jesus. They ask Pilate for the body. And Pilate at this point was shocked that he was already dead because he had only hung on a cross for six hours. That's how much blood loss he had already experienced by the time he got on the cross. And the guard confirmed, yes. In fact, to confirm that he was dead, they had, they had stabbed his heart with a spear and blood and water flowed out, which is a medical condition that requires death for that to happen. And so Pilate gives them the body. And it says, as we continue in verse 39, that Nicodemus, he brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. And taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And Matthew tells us this was actually Joseph's own tomb that he prepared for his family. It says they laid Jesus there. Matthew and Mark tell us that when they were finished, they rolled a massive stone in front to seal the tomb. See, as much as highly as they thought of Jesus, and as highly as they thought of his teaching, they were not expecting a resurrection. And see, here's the part in the story where Nicodemus and his friend become unlikely heroes. Because it was their care for Jesus' body, along with the assumption they had that Jesus would get, was going to stay dead, that would go on to provide irrefutable proof for the first century Christians that Jesus had, in fact, risen from the dead. He had, in fact, died. See, because if someone had been had just come wandering in from the town dump after they'd been dumped there after only six hours on a cross. That would have been shocking, but it would have been easy to explain away. And everybody would have, would have been able to say, oh, he was never dead in the first place. But when they took 75 pounds of sticky oils and ointments and they wrapped the body in layer after layer of this fabric and then coated it all with with 
this mixture, this sticky mixture, if by some stretch of the imagination, he had been able to survive the beating and death on the cross and the spirit of the heart, this mixture over his face, over any person's face, would have killed them at that point. They would have suffocated them. So they placed Jesus in the tomb. And what do we know? On Sunday morning, as soon as the Sabbath was officially over, Mary and Martha would go visit the tomb. They would find the stone rolled away. And what was the first thing they asked? Where's the body? Where's the body? See, they weren't expecting a resurrection. Even though Jesus predicted it multiple times, they just couldn't wrap their heads around it, and nobody was expecting a resurrection. A little later, that Sunday morning, Nicodemus hears whispers and rumors that are circling around this group of religious leaders. The body's gone. He hears a crazy story that the guards came in with some crazy story about seeing an angel and the stone being rolled away. And then he finds out that the religious leaders made a backroom deal with them to pay them off and tell them, give them hush money. Later in the day, Jesus bumps in to one of the disciples who said, we've seen him. He's risen. And thanks to Nicodemus and his friend, the first century Christians had no doubt that he actually died. And they had assurance that he actually rose again. So flash forward just a few years down the road. Nicodemus is being interviewed by one of Jesus' closest disciples, the, the guy named John. And he's so excited as he tells him about the first time he met Jesus and how, how many questions they had. And Jesus just totally didn't answer their questions, but he went to the, the question that was really in their hearts. And he recounts this whole conversation about this weird thing Jesus said. And then his aha moment as he realized that's what Jesus meant as he hung on the cross. And then he tells him about this thing that Jesus said that, it, that the reason that Jesus died was so that everyone who believes in him might have eternal life. And John's writing this down. And Nicodemus is so excited. And years later, as John is writing in his, his account of Jesus' life and taking out his notes of his conversation with Nicodemus, I think as he looks at this whole conversation, he pauses with a tear in his eye, and then he pens some of the most famous words in history, words that even now, 2,000 years later, Many of you know by heart. Words that have communicated the heart of the Heavenly Father to countless people over the last 2,000 years. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. See, it was Jesus' death on Good Friday that paved the way for God to save you. An entrance into God's kingdom, entrance into God's family, forgiveness of your sins doesn't come through earning it. It doesn't come through somehow tipping the scales in your favor, being good enough, because nobody knows what good enough actually is, right? 
It doesn't come. It comes through trusting Jesus. And that's what this phrase believes in really means is it communicates the idea of fully placing your trust, not in what you can do to have favor with God and be okay with God, but fully placing your trust in what he did for you when he died and rose again, transferring your trust from what you can do to earn right standing with God, to, to fully being placed in in Jesus. And when you do that, it says as, as you feel that, the Holy Spirit drawing you and you respond in trust to him and you, and you realize you believe it, then there's this thing that happens where you are literally reborn by the Holy Spirit of God into his family. And from being reborn with a spiritual birth, then from there flows the ability and the desire to live a life that's pleasing to God, to transform your life. And so I want to invite the band to come back up, and we're going to close with a song celebrating what Jesus did for us. And I want to invite you to stand as the band comes up as well. You know, maybe today is the day for some of you in this room where you go from just appreciating Jesus from a distance to truly trusting him and following him. And for some in the room that you've trusted in Jesus many years ago, maybe there's an area in your life where you need to go from being a secret follower of Jesus to publicly and actively following him in your life. Maybe for some of you, it's taking the next step of obedience and being baptized and just saying, I'm in, I'm following Jesus. And you can sign up on that blue card to do that. Maybe it's, it's going to that person your coworker or that person that you know, every time you see him, this thing tugs on your heart. The Holy Spirit tells you, you need to pray for them in the situation they're going through. You need to speak into their life. You need to open your mouth. And as awkward as it feels, put your hand on their shoulder and just say, let me pray for you. Maybe for some, it's inviting somebody to church. Or maybe there's a step of obedience that you know, that you know, that you know that God is calling you to. And it's time to take that step of obedience. And for some in the room, perhaps you have never had a moment in time where you really embraced what Jesus did for you. And maybe today something just kind of clicked inside of you. And you realize, wow, that makes sense. I believe it. And even now you feel your heart beating. That's God's Holy Spirit drawing you to himself. See, eternal life isn't a reward for good people. It's God's free gift to people like you and like me who've been forgiven by his grace. And so if the Holy Spirit is prompting you today, I want to invite you to respond to him. And you can do that by praying a prayer like this after me, either out loud or or quietly in your heart. Heavenly Father, I believe you gave your son Jesus, that he died for my sins and for the sins of the whole world. I want to turn from a life of sin. I ask you to forgive me, and I place all of my trust in what Jesus did for me when he died and rose again. Receive me into your kingdom and into your family. Let me live my life for you 
Transform me by the power of your Holy Spirit. Fill me up with your spirit. In Jesus' name. So Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you came to this earth, that you lived and you died for us, that you rose again, that our faith is anchored in an event in history where you validated all of your claims so that we can have confidence that we have eternal life and peace with God through you. We lift up your name. We love you and we worship you here this day. We pray these things in your name. Amen.